talking about leadership, and I'm giving you some principles. We spoke about the tone in which we express this leadership. The answer to abuse is not non-use, it's correct use. The tone is fatherly, it's motherly, it's kind, it's their interest at heart. The goal is not to moral, morally police people and to tick the boxes, but to prepare a bride for Jesus. The means, our appeal, exhortation, example, rebuke, correction, teaching, uh, the power of preaching, and we need to not lose our confidence in the, the, in, in the preached word. You know, we kind of like you know, leaning on the pulpit, telling stories and sharing our talks and over-relying on audiovisual clips and, you know, that uh, the word, hungry for the word, and as we teach our preachers how to preach, let's teach our listeners how to listen. So we can be like the character in Ezra Pound's work. He said, give me all of it. I guzzle it with outstretched ears. Mixing the metaphors there, the hunger for the Word of God, and seeing behind the humanness of Pete and all the reflective opportunities. Getting the words, what is the word saying? No, what is, look, clear Pete out the way. Don't sit there and say, oh, I don't like you. And um, I had a guy once who drove into the property when I was building the building in Maritzburg, the church building, and he stopped and he said, My marriage is in a mess, but I don't know if you can help me. So I said, Why? So he said, um, well, I look at you on Sunday, you stand up there with a Lani surname and your father drives a Merc. I tell the story, it's anonymous, in my book and I write there, this guy can be very grateful I wasn't building in New Jersey because my people would have buried him in the, in the foundations of our building. I said, but no, excuse me, those two things I have no control over, the car my father drives and my surname. I mean, seriously, the many times I wish I was smit, you know, filling in a form. Ah, forever and a day. We're out of cramp. So, I said, but you're the one of the, you're the one of the bad marriage. Don't, you know, it's incredible, the deflections. He was making it my dad's, my, well, my dad's surname, my surname and my dad's car. That's the issue. No, no, your marriage is the issue. Men are wrecked, hey, woman? Ladies? Hey, Helen. So, the context, and I won't overplay this because I don't want you to cry because I get depressed, but the context mostly in which we do this leadership is constant, 24-hour abuse, <laughs> misunderstanding, suspicion, ungracious scrutiny, projection, and deflection. Anybody want to be a leader? You have rocks in your head. It's difficult to lead, and even just generationally. My dad, I'm a third-generation preacher. My dad said, Pete, my dad, his dad, my dad speaking, he said, Pete, my dad didn't have anywhere near the kind of dramas you have and he led in a generation that was far easier than you, just because of the way the society has, can I say, disintegrated. So we have to remember that, that the call to leadership is a call to come and die. You know, I, if you're not married, that's fine. But if you are married, man, what an opportunity to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, if you're single and it's just you and the, and, and the goldfish, that's fine. And the goldfish can be tricky. But if you're married to some selfish bloke who leaves his undies always shy of the laundry basket and he's, he's insensitive and, you know, just. Did I miss something there? <laughs> Third strike, you're out. <laughs> you see, notice how Helen's getting great courage that I'm around, but Helen, I have to go. I have to go eventually, eh? Don't, don't hide in my grace here, my protective. Um, 
So this, this is not for the faint-hearted. Eh? And, Carol, and uh, John Wimber's gone to be with the Lord, leader of Vineyard, founder of Vineyard. Every year he used to say to his wife, Carol, just remind us again why we're we doing this. And, and <laughs> it's very eloquent. Sometimes we've got to remind ourselves, we've got to encourage each other. There's a lot of reason to be very depressed in this job. Um, in terms of job satisfaction, for me, it's like zero. <laughs> no, seriously, I, you know, that's why when, when, I, when we built our building in Maritzburg, I went to go and build this thing. I thought, how hard can this be? Goodness me, it's just common sense, just, you know. Um, and I came home, I said, Jan, I built a wall today. Urgh, something is there, it's a wall. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's nice to be bivocational, you know, as you work outside the church as well, because then you, you, know, you did something and you fired someone and you sued somebody and you sent an invoice and you built something and you, you hit the target. But in the church, it's like nebulous and the, and the, the crowd is con- it's like a moving target. It's like goalposts on scud missiles. They keep moving and, and you just get going with people and you're, and you're helping them along and suddenly uh, the Lord's telling us our season's up, which is which is code for, I'm out of here, I don't like what, because I'm not getting what I want. I hate that, that seasonal thing. I, I want to say to people, I, I'll season you, or, you know, what, what are we looking for here? You, 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 you pour your life out, and you lay your life down, and you take abuse, and you, and, um, you know, you're not going to get rich in this job, and it's difficult, and you've got to protect your kids from the ungracious scrutiny of, of unrighteous members, and on and on and on, and your own insecurities, and your own fears, and your own sins, and the devils, and the lies, and the pressures, and that's incredible. It's a great place to really think about seriously committing suicide in the drive through at McDonald's with a plastic fork. It, that becomes a strong alternative sometimes. And Mondays, you know, they used to sing, tell me why I don't like Mondays. I want to shoo, hoo, 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 hoo. They could never get that word out, you know. <laughs> shoot the whole day down. I mean, Mondays, some pastors are like, basket cases because it's just another day, another manic Sunday, should be a song, just there wondering, what the heck am I doing here? What kind of fruit am I doing? You know, you could actually have great growth and then you can have great problems in the church and people leave and then you sound back to like a hundred and you think we're starting again. And I keep saying, no, you're not starting again. You're not starting again. It's the same journey. It's just the crowds are very fickle. And sometimes we chase them away. Sure, I, I, I will admit to that, um, some intentionally. Um, but, but so this context is a difficult one. This is not for the faint-hearted. My eldest son, he wants to be a preacher. I said, Jared, no, but go finish your political science degree. Go and get a job. Go and get, you know. My twin brother says he's, he's the only, only one of the HB twins with a real job. He's an accountant. Um, but then he, he says he's got personality. Um, uh, so I said, Jared, Jared, no, but in this modern church, what can't you do from the marketplace? We have three sites. Steph leads one. Steph's paid elder with us. And the guy who leads the Stellenbosch site is a marketplace-based guy. He's a, he's a property developer. Now he's, he's, a, he's a middle management by his own choice because he was an executive man- level uh, in pharmaceuticals. Leading a site. It's not a joke. It's a serious it, it's a plant of sorts linked to the whole it's one church, many expressions is our philosophy. Um, and, and it's partly because of this. I remember at Bible school hearing a lecturer saying that he, he was trying to discourage his son going into ministry. And I used to think, what a carnal thing. What a terrible thing. You stopped the boy from living in the call of Jesus. 
And now, after 25 years of living in the call of Jesus, I'm thinking, hmm, I think I'll be good at brain surgery. It's got to be easier. So this context can either make you cynical and jaded and jaundiced, defensive, stop dreaming, stop having vision. Like the guy, past the elder who has an affair, gets crucified, and he should fall on his sword anyway. But the guy who doesn't commit adultery but stops dreaming because of cynicism and self-protection is just as bad a malady as that. You know? And you know there are so many guys like that around the world who just had one bone fight too many, one ungracious email too many. There are days when I can sometimes think, do I want to open this email? Emails made cowards of us all. Do I want to open this SMS? What is in this call? I mean, the graph, the emotional graph for an elder, you'll know the guys who, who are elders, um, you're rejoicing someone's pregnant. Someone's lost a baby. Someone's getting married. Someone's getting divorced. Someone's, someone's had a promotion. Someone's got cancer. Someone got healed of cancer. Someone's left the church and fighting with you. Someone's just arrived and died in God heaven and can't believe the freedom and joy. And the next day, someone's leaving because you're controlling. This is a very interesting job. It's the kind of job you can lose your hair over. <laughs> so I'm not doing it right, I don't think. The wig, don't worry. The context and, and cynicism is the refuge of hurt people. Don't want to get hurt again, and I defend myself, shroud myself in defense mechanism of cynicism. I don't expect anything from anything good of people. I commit the sin of low expectation. I have jokes like the next church I'm going to plant is not going to have people in it. And, uh, and it's funny on one level. And uh, there are all, all kinds of Monday day off jokes from pastors. And, and they, they're funny, but generally they're told by guys who really are tired. And uh, I mean, the Methodists and the, and, the Pente- and the Presbyterians and those people, they've got brains at least. They give a guy a sabbatical every seven years. They give him a good leave and he goes and... And he, and, he, and he goes and gets schooled, upskilled and educated and he gets refreshed for the next journey. And uh, we don't do that, Charismatics, because we're so full of the Holy Spirit. We actually don't do anything like that. We do sabbaticals because our marriages are falling apart and our kids are on drugs and we can't get out of bed because we're just shot and we have to have a sabbatical just to make it through the next year. Something's really wrong. The, the care of our leaders and our pastors has got to become more of a priority in local churches because of this context. All right, let me move on, because that's very boring, very, very depressing. The lubricant. What's going to lubricate this job? If this job is half as... Uh, uh, I've got a section of my book called Surely You're Joking. Surely You're Exaggerating. So no, I'm not. Stop calling me Shirley. This, this job can kill you. This is, this is an inconvenient truth. This job could kill you. And so... The antidote to this kind of negativity, this, this learned helplessness, this, this depression, this low expectation for people's lives and for, for God to move in their lives, the antidote to that has got to be joy. The lubricant the, that keeps the machinery of this calling going is not the anointing. In America, they don't have a T in anointing. It's the anointing. Just get the anointing. Let the anointing fall. Let them... We have, have lots of anointing. Well, I don't think that's enough. And I'm careful how I say that. 
as a charismatic. But joy. Nehemiah says it's with joy we draw from the wells of salvation. Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured, not enjoyed, endured the cross. Joy is one of the most vulnerable commodities on the planet. I can't stand the way he makes me feel. And then Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a consulted mediums, mediums in the White House, for goodness sake, not going to win an award for godliness, Eleanor Roosevelt, she said, no one can make you anything without your permission. Well done, Ellie. He makes me feel, no, no, no one can make you feel. He stole my joy. No, you didn't guard it. You thought it was just a casual thing. You didn't know it was more precious than gold. You didn't know that it could be the only thing standing between you and the abyss. The thing standing between you and harsh, controlling treatment of people. Joy. Joy in God. Joy in Him. Joy in His call. Joy in being alive. It's a vulnerable commodity which you must guard. You must guard. You must nurture. You must protect. No one can do that for you. Someone said you cannot draw the sword out of somebody else's scabbard. You can't draw strength from your, from your friend or from your spouse or from your lead guys or your elders or your deacons. Or, everyone must draw the, the sword from their own scabbard. That's what they've got to know the word. But more than that, in a similar way, I can't fabricate joy. I can't lay it on you. And, and, and this area in the charismatic movement is completely overrated. So-called altar area. There is no altar. We are the altar. I am happy for a response. I'm fine. But I'm telling you, a lot less gets done when, the, when, the, when the, the spiritual key of G is being played and the mood is being managed and hands are being laid on. A lot less is going on than you really think. I believe in that. It has its place. But it's become the substitute for hard work, for spiritual gravitas. We, are just, we, we lack gravitas. Gravitas linked to the word, obviously, gravity. It's all very light and frothy and superficial in our modern charismatic world. And so we want people, someone else to confer it. Lay hands on me, Mr. Anderson. Give me the blue pill, Mr. Anderson. Bring in your guru. Someone prophesy over me. You know, we have, if we have a conference saying, um, uh, everything you wanted to know about sin, we'd have an astoundingly low turnout. But if the conference was called, your best wife, I mean, your best life now. How to, how to Botox sag free Christianity in three lessons. How to have the, the wealth and the joy that God Intends for you to have that you deserve, Ed. We'll fill the place. We'll sell all our CDs and DVDs. Someone else, give it to me. Lay hands on me. Give me joy. You know, um, control the preaching diet so I get joy. Bring in the clowns. Bring in the dancing girls. Let the woman jump out of cakes, metaphorically speaking. Let's have some kind of thing, some charismatic thing, some God product we can juggle crazy. Joy, I have to nurture that. I have to own that. You know, I was in a country the other day, and I just said this one sentence. I think most Christian, Christian TV is wonk and should go off the air. And I said, and I think this country doesn't need, well, it doesn't, doesn't need Christian TV. Now, I forgot to check who's in the crowd. Of course, then I said, I had this thought, and I said, anybody here involved in Christian TV? Three hands went up. One guy's the owner of a Christian station network, not just a little 
WKRP in Cincinnati thing, the whole network thing. He, I met him afterwards. I was kind of ambushed, and I went to shake his hand. He refused to shake my hand. Tears of anger, so angry with me that I had completely disregarded and disrespected his calling. And then he goes on the air. I said, well, I wasn't doing that. I was in the context I was giving, the context was, get out of the pew, Joseph's branch going over the wall. That was the, that was the thing. The power's in the pew. Get out of the pew. Don't overrate my ability to grow this church and to win the last. That was the context. So the guy said, well, you know, last week he, he on, he, on the air, he slaughtered, um, prosperity doctrine, which I'd already slaughtered in the sermon. So I said, well, we're allies then. We're speaking in the same thing, aren't we? You know, I could see the guy obviously had other issues in his life and wounded, and I wasn't going wasn't to deal with him. And, and I thought, you know, if you came and told me, Peter, you're an idiot, blah, 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 you're this, and your calling is, is this, and you tread all over my calling, I would just say, think to myself, well, you're also an idiot. I'd say, you know what I mean? I'm not going to get tears of anger and fight with you. You can't live like that. That your joy is at the mercy of someone else's comment of your life and someone else's behavior. We've got to get adults and less adolescents in some of these things. Joy has to be has to be guarded because it's a vulnerable commodity. Joy will lubricate the call of God, not whether somebody phoned me or someone included me or someone prophesied or made space for me. No, no, I own my own joy. And and like Martin Luther, uh, you know, to heck with it. Here I am. And then the last thing I've had covered is the payoff in this in this job is um, from specific people. It's absolutely zero. Zero. The response, the payoff, sense of job satisfaction, zero. Nothing. Nada. Nothing. Zero. Some people. But in this lifetime, maybe you might see some fruit. Harper says God often hides our fruit behind his back so that he can test to see whether we're really doing this for him or for us. <laughs> Don't you hate that about God? He hides it. He wants to see whether you're in this for your own glory. You may never see fruit. You may see some fruit. You may see little flashes of it, and then it'll disappear like the British sun. Um, and when you get to see it, so you've got to learn how to read, read progress, and you've got to celebrate a nanosecond of breakthrough. Don't wait until everybody is, you know, Michael the Archangel. If that guy comes to your home group once in eight weeks, and suddenly he's coming once in four weeks. That's a massive breakthrough of unparalleled proportions. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Celebrate it. You may never see any fruit. I had a, I had a lady in London who... who um, who was a, a fairly uh, complex teenager. And I had to bother her and rebuke her a bit. And Jan had to spend hours with her as well. And she came to me, sidled up. She's now a mom, happily married, and she's a lovely lady. She sat next to me, and I realized how old I am getting, you know, because, um, you know, she's got kids, and she sidles up to me, and she says with great tenderness, uh, Pete, just want to say thanks for rebuking me all those years ago. And please thank Jan. And I really needed it. And she was an underfathered, complex context she came from. And that's 15 years ago. So, I mean, that's great. Well, you know, I'm so glad. And I'm enjoying, I'm celebrating, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
participating in some of the success. That's only the success I've seen. Most success you'll never see. You'll never get them. And in fact, even the negative thing where you have bun fights with people, you might have to carry that thing for 10 years before someone comes back and says, you know, I overplayed it. I was a little bit harsh there. I, can you forgive me? Meanwhile, the church was divided and everything, major pressure happened and the guy was ill-advised. And, um, uh, so the payoff is possibly, as you always joke, not in this life. It's, the, the benefits are out of this world. But I'm pushing, I'm pushing for, um, for Paul where he says, um, you're really standing firm, so now we really live. And we need to learn to look for evidences of grace. We start all our prayer meetings, all our elders' meetings, with what we call stories of grace, because the word testimony sounds a bit like, you know, um, legal, some, you know, legal term. Stories of grace. What's God doing? Tell me some breakthrough, because the negative stuff, oh, we've got lots of that. Is there any glimmer of hope here? What's, you know, you listen to some people, the whole church has fallen apart. The whole church doesn't exist anymore. And everyone's gone. Everyone's leaving, you know, and you think, oh, man. And you, when you discover the hyperbole in the language, that's why you must never allow anyone to say, people are saying, well, who? No, I can't tell you. Well, then I can't listen. Sorry. Next. Now, people are saying, which people? Those two. Those two. He's on drugs, and she has out-of-body experiences every third day. What day did she tell you it on? Narrow it down. Put a face, put a face to, the, to, the, to the, the objection. Look for stories of grace. So Paul will say, now we really live, you're standing firm. Hybels um, is, I, I love Hybels. I mean, there are some people who are critical of, is he seeker sensitive or seeker sensible or whatever. But I, I don't know. I've been in close quarters with Hybels, and I've seen true, not theatrical, true tears about the local church. He loves the local church, Paul Hybels. He says there's nothing like the local church when it's working well. But when it's, when it's hemorrhaging and when it, there's pain, um, it's a sad place to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. But he says that if we're going to bring our redemptive potential that we're supposed to bring to our generation, then we've got to have people who know what their gifts are, who know what God's called them to who are studious in developing themselves. I, I agree with Marcus Buckingham. He, I don't think he's even the safe guy. He says, don't worry about your weaknesses so much. Just, worry, just develop your strengths. Just develop your strengths. Why are you here? Why did God add you? When people join our church, they do quite a demanding eight-week DNA course. And we tell them in the beginning, we might not want them, they might not qualify. And we tell them how we can kick them out, all in the first night. Jane is cringing in the front row. Jane's been cringing for 20 years. But we tell them nicely, we say, but what we're really interested in is why God thinks we need you. What is it we lack that he's, he's seen in you that you've come to fill? So we start like that, not, okay, we're going to you know, help your children have the best children's church program and it's all about me, 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 you know, and good coffee. Although I do tell our leaders often, you know, it takes more than a good cup of coffee to build a church. It's a joke. Nowadays, it's like, it's like just get good coffee and sexy lighting and nice furniture and you'll grow the church. No, no. <laughs> You just have, you know, highly wide people. But he says that if people who are gifted to serve, serve, and he has a whole long list. It's a wonderful quote. Um, and then he says, and if those who are called to lead will lead, will just lead. You can hear the passion in his voice. And the reason that leadership's not happening is what I've said earlier in the first session, is this ambiguity, this tinkering, philosophical tinkering, this conflict, this self-critique self, um, and this nervousness and this sense, is this legitimate and all that kind of disempowering language. 
And so he quotes Romans 12, where it says, um, have a sober view of yourself, having presented your body as a living sacrifice, knowing what God's will has not been conformed to the world. Have a sober view of yourself. And then he goes on to talk about, about spiritual gifts. And he talks about if you're going to lead, lead with all diligence. Some translations say with zeal. Why is that? Well, because the opposition is so insidious, so continuous, that you can need zeal. You need a front-footed disposition. You, there's no such thing as opposition-free leadership. It's going to come again, coming around again. It, that's just life. Get over it. This utopia, I remember as a young, stupid pastor, I was, I was complaining to a friend of mine who was going to speak, and he said, Pete, you know the problem with you is you're trying to, you're trying to pastor the perfect church. This is all about you. I said, oh, yes. Oof. You're right. It's about me, basking in reflected glory. This is not me wanting the people to be what Jesus wants them to be. It's about me wanting them to be that so that I can look good. Very subtle, and it was quite a moment of revelation for me. You're always going to have opposition. Just the nature of it and the frequency of it that changes, the depth varies, but you're always going to have opposition. It's, it's human, humanity. People will join the church, they'll grow, they'll sh- shake off this carnality. New people will come. We'll start again. There are always babies being born. Babies are exciting, but babies got nappies. We've got to continually deal with this ebb and flow, and so we don't get all, all like, oh, a nappy. You know, no, no, a nappy. Well, that's what babies do. So and so did pulled off this great stunt. Well, no, it's human. That's fine. Not the end of the world. You're not like, oh, he's a you know, scarred letter. No, no, it's just, calm down. We're getting there. We'll make it. Um, we're British. Calm down. And so this opposition for us, I've covered some of this. Um, it's both our own sin. It's a sin in our followers. And both of that is conscious sin and unconscious sin. Respectable and unrespectable sins. Um, Jerry Bridges, good book if you want to get that. Um, we've got problems with our culture. People don't want to follow in the culture. They're not going to want to follow in the church. They're going to bring Corinth in. So the guy's going to sleep with his stepmother because Corinth is a, is a cesspool. Corinth is an intellectual, self-prepossessed place of sin. It's, 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 the, it's the center of worship of Diana and, and temple prostitution. Of course it makes sense. It's become an echo of the culture. We've got cultural pressures. We've got fallenness. It's not just sin necessarily, but just humanity being human. Things we don't discern. We don't, we, we don't listen. We're in a hurry. We assume things. Not necessarily sinful things, just fallen things. Um, we repeat things that we shouldn't. And, and then, of course, the, the devil's attacks, which mostly, for a leader, on insinuations, undermining, discouragements. Has God really called you? Have you, you know, you, you, you send that thing, you know, you haven't had a quiet time, um, you know, cause and effect. Um, I had a guy phone me saying he ran a church for bikers in um, Wilderness, near Mossel Bay in South Africa. And he said to me, Pete, I don't know what to do. Um, I think we must let sin in the camp. I said, why? He said, well, um, one of our guys died on, 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 on his bike, motorbike the other day. And I don't know, I've checked everything and I, I don't think, you know, I said, hey, bro, 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 hang on. You've got a biker's church. Do the maths. I don't want to be unkind, but I was saying, hello, you, your people are given to death because they ride bikes. <laughs> so the maths, sometimes we, 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 we do the maths and we end up, you know, 
A plus B, we end up with W, when we all know it should be C. We're a complex. Some people, they don't feel, they feel they've lost their salvation, they feel, they feel like they're dirty, they feel God doesn't love them, and they, they, they're slightly autistic, they feel this, this feeling in the, this, in the pit of their stomachs, and then I want to say to them, well, how's your fiber? I'm feeling depressed. Well, tell me about your sleep pattern. Have you exercised lately? See, we're spirit, soul, and body. We're one entity. I think we're running after the wrong um, diagnosis or the wrong solution. We're prescribing the wrong medicine. We've misdiagnosed the problem. Not all spiritual. Not all, you know. You know, there's a... There's a, there's a um, a world slump in the finances, so it might follow that the, the Christians' spending patterns are just as unrighteous as the people in the marketplace, and they all mortgage to the hilt and got no space to whatever, and they're all defined by their stuff. So, you know, it's not necessarily because the elders aren't praying enough that the money's gone down. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the devil wants to get you all tweaked out, insinuations, undermining, disconsent, tent, lies, accusations, the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing the brethren in your ears, in your heart, and he's putting stuff in you about so-and-so. Um, uh, the op- opportunity for, um, for misunderstanding, it's, it's devil-induced, seriously. Manipulating your emotions around your own sin. Some of us are unable to um, appropriate forgiveness for ourselves. Some of the biggest proponents of, of grace are applying that grace message so ungraciously, no one's putting that out, breaking up churches, breaking up relationships, turning their backs on, on, on each other over the doctrine of grace. Hello? So I'm the only one who battles with this stuff. It's like, hmm, the devil. That's why the Bible keeps advocating a calm, gentle response. Slow down. Proverbs says, if you're in a hurry, you're an idiot. Get the facts first. Um, don't respond. You know, maybe you should go and have a sleep. One of our Bible school student uh, lecturers years ago said, um, when you're tired, the most spiritual thing you can do is go to sleep. I think that's great advice. I find the devil. You know? I had a lady once who phoned me, and she was a, she was a, 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 a draining, a VDP, a very draining person. The gift. And um, oh, she was needy, and she was lonely, and she was she had been through a bad divorce, and oh, she was prophetic, terrible combination. <laughs> and um, and she phoned me, and I knew she wanted to chew me about something. She wanted to tell me something. And so I said to, let's just call her Susie. Said, Susie, sorry, can I can you do me a favor? Can you phone me next week? Because I'm really, really tired, and I know I'm irritated, and. And when I'm tired, I get even more irritated. And I think I'm going to end up with a response that's not going to be less to you. So, can you phone me next week and then we can talk about this thing? She, she, she kind of gasped. I think she's so used to pastors being on tap. And that's what they pay me for. Be on tap. Be on call. Hmm. So, um, so she said, oh, oh, okay. And you know what? She never called. Problem went away. She loved me. I was like, no. Didn't seem like she was frosty the next time she saw me. Whatever it was, I think if I asked you, she'd probably say, well, "What? You know, what call?" Let me just finish. Do you, what time do you want to go? Four. 
How fast? Okay, let me just finish off with the text, because I know the teachers in the Amits were really shaking, edging in their chairs, thinking, when is this guy going to quote the Bible? So here it is. Whoever that is, I've discerned those people. Um, so Isaiah 31. Kath help Ed, that's in the New Old Testament. Isaiah 31, 32. Okay, I don't, want to, I don't want to put anything on anybody, but I certainly want to suggest that we just read the squiggles on the page. And um, this is the kind of leader I want to be. Um, some of it might be idealistic because I'm so full of sin and brokenness and humanity, um, which comes as a shock. Uh, but tomorrow I'll be fine. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it's talking about leadership. And perhaps, perhaps prophetically it's talking about Jesus. And so... Ultimately, all this would perfectly find its place in Jesus, um, but I don't want us to, to um, wuss out of the call to try and be this. But I just want you to see the metaphors here. Uh, it's wonderful. This, for me, is the, the role of the husband, the role of the parent, the mother. It's the role of um, the father. It's the role of the leader, certainly the elder, certainly the deacon, and anyone who leads others and leadership's infant. So I can't see, think of one Christian who would say, this doesn't apply to me. So, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. There's coming a day when leadership will be good to you. Coming a day when we won't have to write on DNA manuals like we do on cigarette boxes. Leadership could kill you. Okay? Both for the followers and both for the leaders. There is a way that we can lead where the defining spirit will be righteousness and justice. Isaiah 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and justice. Righteousness is not just good and bad, but the thing will be done correctly. Okay? There will be justice. There will be a fruitful progress as a result. And there's rulership, there's government, there's the river banks. This is not some, some morass or some uh, wasteland or swamp of leaderlessness. Government there will reign and rule. These are, these are hard words to dismiss. Um, verse 2. Each will be, each of these kings and princes, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Isn't that lovely? Look at the metaphors of refuge. Hiding place, shelter, shade. Look at the Metaphors of sustenance or nurture. Um, streams of water in a dry place. And I think, you know, you guys are saying, well, this is the worst, this is the driest winter, the driest April in a hundred years. Well, you know, I hate to shock you, but there are drier places. <laughs> and those of you who come from Africa will know that um, this is a meaningless phrase in waterlogged England. Streams of water in a dry place. Um, uh, the, the image of sustenance and uh, the only thing between the recipient and the abyss and death is this water provided by these leaders. It's a lovely metaphor. Streams of water in a dry place. It's in the plural, streams. It's an, an ongoing attention to the source of this water. These leaders aren't going to just dry up because they got tired or, or promote themselves out to a better place and a better tenure. No, this is consistent nursing and nurturing Year after year, in the face of abuse, in the face of loneliness, in the face of ungracious scrutiny, low income, frustrations, low progress, no signs of breakthrough, those streams will flow because that's, that's what streams do. 
in a dry place, like a shade of a great rock in a weary land. These metaphors are all over the Bible. Thomas says, you are my hiding place. Over and over, says, you are my rock, you are my fortress, you are my strong tower. Um, God says, I, I would hide you in the cleft of the rock, um, uh, the, the streams of living water. That can't possibly just be speaking in tongues and rolling on the floor in a Toronto kind of way. It has to be the life of God, the creative Zoe life of God flowing out of our lives into our generation, streams of life-giving grace and kindness and a cup of water in Jesus' name. This is all over the Bible. Jesus, I am the living water. You won't thirst if you, if you drink from me. He's the rock. He's, not only is he the rock of security, he's the rock of offense. This is the, uh, the, the metaphor here for leaders. And then it goes in verse 3, then. And, I mean, you don't have to be an English major to know that words are important. So when it says then, then whatever's said before follows. <laughs> so, buts. I love, the Bible's full of big buts. I love big buts. Um, but God, but you, but now. It means it's, it's qualifying everything that's gone before. And there weren't verses and chapters until the 1500s. So some of the thoughts are divided artificially by the people who organized the Bible. It, it helps us. I find it hard to read the message because I don't know where I am. Like, where am I? <laughs> but yeah, you know, you know, verse, chapter and verse, blah, blah, blah. But those verses weren't there, chapters weren't there. So sometimes the thought gets killed in, in, in sequence or chapter even in spacing in the same chapter where they put another heading, sometimes the thought gets sort of distant from the, next, from the previous context. So the way I'm reading this, if I'm just applying the text and squiggles on the page, then if we lead like this, if that's our goal in the midst of ungracious scrutiny and the temptation to, to negativity and to cynicism and to self-protection, if we really try and be this hiding place from the wind and the shelter from the storm and streams, without being messianic, without controlling people's lives and you know, becoming codependent in their need. That's not what I'm saying. But, but your goal is to bless. You're not, you've not woken up this morning thinking, whose life can I wreck? Like some people think. They think you got up this morning thinking, whose life can I wreck today? They think that, expecting that. That's what authority figures do to them. So that's what they want you to do. They project all the stuff. You can stand on your head. You will be nailed. That's just what it's like. If you don't like the kitchen, can't stand the heat, out the kitchen. So if we lead like this, then... The eyes of those who see will not be closed. Then the ears of those who hear will give attention. Then the heart of the hasty. That's the language. That's how we must assume it. Then the tongue of the stammerers. Then the fool will be no, no more called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, um, etc., etc. And so what I'm saying is, if we can, this is why leadership is so important. So if the devil can get us to fight each other and get us to disregard each other and just not even respect each other, then there are consequences. The divorce is a, is like a winner for the devil. He poisons generations after generations. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's genius. Make the fathers absent, break up the marriages, and we just perpetuate the pathologies. And we wonder why those of, those of you who are teachers feel like you're doing right control more than teaching anything. Brilliant, devil. Brilliant. So the reverse is true. If we can have this redemptive kind of leadership, then, without being naive, without being putting this into our time frame, which makes us all bitter when we don't get that time frame, we should put our faith out, well, we're leading like this, then we should be expecting and looking for evidences of grace that look like this. So verse 3 would be revelation. 
people are starting to see the word for themselves. It's revelation flowing in people's lives. Oh, okay, that's how this, there's this willingness to inquire, to, to look, look at God's word and, and at God's worldview. And the eyes of those who hear will give attention. Of course, you can't read ears, sorry, ears of those. You can't read ears and hear in the Bible without thinking of what? Obedience. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's not receive an auditory stimulus. No, no, no. It's obey. When there's leadership that sets up this environment, one of the natural products can be a greater level of obedience because it's a safe place to obey and it's not forced or legislated. It's graciously given. Not just obey your leaders, although Hebrews 13 does call for that. Can I say that in self-possessed England? Obey your leaders. (laughs) Then verse 4, the heart of the hasty will understand wisdom will come to our people. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. There's courage flowing back into the veins of our people. The fool will no no more be called noble. So the culture will transform. So we won't call um, theft misappropriation of funds. And we won't call open marriages, open marriage, we call it adultery. And we won't, when we're trying to decide whether we actually did sleep with the intern or not, what the word it means. As in the White House a few years ago. There's a transformation. What is, what is noble will be called noble. What is foolish will no longer be called noble. We start to see clearly, our society needs this kind of Christianity. The fool speaks folly, verse 6. The chance of integrity growing, this kind of a congregation. To practice ungodliness, utter the error concerning the Lord, will be changed with holiness, practice of holiness. We will be unhappy with our sin. We'll learn to hate the things God hates. We'll keep short accounts. We'll repent. And can I just say that? It's shocking that you have to say this. But, you know, you still need to repent. Some of my friends, they're not reading their Bible. They talk rubbish. You don't have to repent anymore. No. No, no, no. You're saved. Of course you are. Completely confident in that. You're not repenting to, to be saved again. You're repenting to restore the relationship. Imagine those of you who are married who never said sorry to your wife or your husband. I know some men say sorry more times than they really need to. That's because they're afraid. But you mean you can't practice that at home. Oh, we don't have to repent, babes. You just, you know, you be an old cow and I'll be an old dog and you know, we'll just get over, you know, we're married. You know, we're saved. No, no, no. No, no. No. Holiness. Not perfection. Maturity and growing in holiness, the work of sanctification in our lives. Leave the craving of the hungry, unsatisfied, the whole sense of impact. This is the culture changing, the power of the gospel changing. Woman at ease in verse 9. Complacent daughters. It's not a gender-specific issue. People who are complacent, fringe people, live on the fringes of church life. There's so many of those, aren't there? Hiding away on the fringes of church life. Disconnected, disinterested, selectively engaged. Etc., 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 etc. Verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. A fruitful field. See, this is the culture. I don't believe in... Someone said to me, the problem with you is you're kingdom now. I said, yeah, no, I'm kingdom now, kingdom tomorrow, kingdom the day after. What they thought I meant was, 
We will empty the prisons. We will empty the hospitals. Well, I don't know. We will while there's sin on the earth. I don't really think we will. But we've got to give it a go. The gospel must do something in our culture. It must change. Surely this gospel can change our culture. And um, so the kind of leadership we have will lift the head of our people, our expectations. Uh, I said in Europe recently, Europe does want God. Don't tell me they don't want God, because people are very dismissive. They say, oh, it's fine for you, because Africa is so much chaos, so it's easy to preach the gospel. Well, hijacking probably helps. You know what I mean? It kind of, it kind of simplifies things, and you look at life a little differently. But sin is sin. Even the guy with the gun to his head is still a sinner with a gun to his head. No, no, no. Europe wants God. We've got to find where are the Wesleys, where are the Spurgeons, where is that kind of generation, where the woman. I read a wonderful book, um, London Missionary Society. I mean, England. We're not speaking German around the world. We're speaking English. Thank God for that. The power of England, Britain, unbelievable. Took over the world. And then because you're so polite, you said, oh, I perceive we've taken over the world. We shouldn't do this. Sorry. And went home. And gave the colonies back. And the colonists were going, oh, what do we do? And they've been messing it up ever since you left. What was I talking about? Europe wants God. They do. Europe wants God. They just, they just don't want a wussy church. It's not compelling. Accommodating the culture. I'm not saying have signs God hates faggots. No, no. But God's, people want a compelling gospel. I got an email uh, this week. from I was in London doing this men's conference. And I'm holding back here because there are ladies here. But men, they need it straight. And we had, we had a wonderful time, honest, hard time. And one of the guys wrote and said, I brought a friend who's given up on the church years ago, and he came, and he was mesmerized by this kind of a gospel. And he came back on the Sunday meeting, hadn't been to church for years. What's the point? The point is, I think sometimes we try to accommodate the culture, and we're dumbing down the gospel. And it's an affront to them. Oh, London Missionary Society, thank you. London Missionary Society. Do you know, this might, and there's no pressure for any ladies here, do you know that there were women missionaries and under the call of God who got on steamboats and sailboats and went down to places like Madagascar and Tahiti, knocked on the doors of bachelor missionaries and said, Mr. Symington, my name is Evelyn Smith, and under the will of God and in the will of God, I've come to be your wife. Nice to meet you. Exactly. Could you imagine? Knocking nodded. Well, he's a bit short, really. Oh, he's a bit fat, isn't he? He's got no hair, or he's got too much hair, or he's hairy, or I don't know. No. Incredible sense of laying a lot. The Moravians setting themselves into slavery to preach the gospel. See, the gospel we're preaching is not a reflection of our personality. I'm not offering you this because I'm excessive and I'm over the top and I'm weird. Well, I am all those things. But, but this, is the, this is the standard the gospel offers us. It doesn't offer us anything else. A, a gentle kind of a weak, anemic, plug-in-where-you-want-to kind of culture. No, this is a come and die for the gospel. There's a king who's ruling, who's reigning. Hell is not for the long weekend. It's real. So how do we get that kind of transforming culture? It's not just a little take a pill and a little formula, but certainly a great step towards that kind of a culture is for us to, in this room to take this and you look at what it means to lead. Because if we can lead like this, maybe God can make us a hiding place. Maybe he can make us a stream of, of, of sustenance. Maybe 
then there could be some changes. And I'm not saying we must get perfect, then the church will change. The formula is an is a unhelpful thing. In my book, I talk about my neighbor, who's a, who's a New Frontiers, he's now a New Frontiers, was a New Frontiers pastor, but when he was part of the vineyard in, in South Africa, he um, and two of his, uh, and his assistants, his, his, they were co-assistants, I know them all, no, both of them, were at, in such a war with the lead guy for six months. They didn't even talk to each other. That church had unparalleled revival in Cape Town. Sort of, sort of 80s, late 80s, middle 80s, basically. Unparalleled revival. So much for, well, you have to have Psalm 133. Behold how good it is when the brothers dwell together in unity. So we must get unity or we won't have revival. Well, you know what? It's good to have unity. You'll do more and you'll be happy and there'll be fewer knife wounds. But God isn't applying a... It's not about a formula. So I'm not saying this is in a formulaic way. I'm just saying if I get an option to be all kinds of leaders, I want to try to go for that in Isaiah 50, that Isaiah 32. That's the kind of leader I want to be. I want to pay attention. And there are so many enemies for me living in that. Cynicism, fatigue, criticism, low levels, tired of ungracious scrutiny. Graham Cook, British prophet, is a great letter he writes, and he reads it to God when he gets ungracious scrutiny. I quote him in my book. He says, in my job as a prophet, I get lots of ungracious scrutiny. I, I interject into his quote in brackets. I say, no, well, Graham, not only you. You haven't got the monopoly on this. We all do this if we're in spiritual leadership. You know? And he says, he lifts the letter to God like Hezekiah, and a bit like Nehemiah with Sanballat and Tobiah, and he says, um, Lord, help me. May this fashion something in me that brings you pleasure, but protect me from this ungracious scrutiny of others. You know? I, I worry. I, I want to cry about the, the um, human collateral when it comes to the local church. It's not necessary. It's not, sometimes you look at the issues and you think, you know what, we're actually talking about the same thing. But our egos are uncrucified. So I want to just recommend to you a leadership that's sane, a leadership style, a leadership calling on your life that, that, that you're allowing God to grow you in it. And you're sustaining your joy. You're protecting your heart. You're keeping the big picture in view because this is really worth it. Everything else is going to die. I tell our business guys, excuse me, sir, with all due respect, your widget, your gadget is going to burn the great scheme of things, with all due respect, Ed, it's just the flipping processor or whatever your gadget is. The only thing that's going to turn you are the souls of men and women. This, our job, this is way more important than what we do in the marketplace. I, I tell you, it's, it's unbelievable that I have to call for this because wherever I go, I'm dumbfounded by the constant disrespect for the local church, from the church. If you spoke to my wife and treated my wife the way we treat Jesus' wife, I'd punch your lights out. Amazing. We tolerate stuff we shouldn't be when God's offering us wide open space. So may I encourage you, there are people, lost people out here in all these little villages around here. This is a district. This is a regional church. It's not just St. Albans who are hungry for Jesus. And may I encourage you, may I, may I, under God, endorse the call of God in your life? Aunt Helen, Mike, you guys, deacons, home group leaders. And won't you just go before God and say, God, put more vuma, put more octane in my tank. 
I want to do this thing. I want to do it well. I don't want to be sidetracked. I don't want to be um, discouraged. I, you know, I, want to know, I want to understand the real issues, and I want to lay my life down for the sake of your kingdom. Let your kingdom come on earth in my day. Amen. Finished. And I pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women who routinely and demonstratively have laid their lives down. Thank you for the history of this church. Thank you for the victories of this church, even the valleys and the, the, the dark days that have brought gravitas and that you are using and have used to conform us into Jesus' image. Thank you for the new day. Thank you for the new chapter. Thank you for what you are, are doing and you will do. I pray that you would strengthen feeble hands and weak knees. I pray that the lubricant of grace and joy would flow in hearts and lives. Thank you for the redemptive potential that rests within these pews. Men and women who don't even know how fabulously and spectacularly gifted they are to bring your word to their generation. Won't you breathe on coals that are, are losing the intensity? Won't you, won't you corral wild spirits and wild temperaments that are self-destructive? And won't you bring this people into step that we would march in a way that's productive? Pray that you'd bring healing where there is fracture, where there's difficulty, where there's stickiness, the grace flow, may mercy flow, may truth flow, may love flow, may we regain the upper ground of revelation that this is Jesus' bride that we are preparing for Jesus. Thank you for fresh anointing to lead. I pray for new courage for those who've lost courage, those who are intimidated, the courage flow. May this next season be hallmarked by this kind of Isaiah 32 leadership. Thank you, Father, for every one of the flock who named this house as their house. Pray for tomorrow's meetings, that there be a wonderful sense of your presence and joy. Pray for the Dave Rigby, is it, as he preaches in the morning, just for an anointing from you and a grace and a blessing uh, on everything that's done in the evening. Your goodness and your grace be all over these people. Thank you for growth on all levels in this place, we pray, Father. Pray for Anton, for Helen, for the elders, deacons, for new strength, new day. I want to speak life, I want to speak hope, I want to speak breakthrough in Jesus' name. Thank you for the unsaved who are about to be saved. May there be a steady stream of people coming to you through friendships, through coffee times, in the marketplace, and workshops, and offices, and SMSs, and Facebook and email and phone calls and visits and home visits. May the gospel run unimpeded. In Jesus' name. Amen.